guys, Cora Linda here, and welcome to my podcast, Filmmaking, Actually. As I mentioned in the intro episode, sometimes there's going to be some other people covering other topics who know things better than I do, such as my husband, the executive vice president of Space Dream Productions, Spaceship. But you can call him Spacey if you like. That's what most people do. Spacey was honored to host a workshop for the Organization of Independent Filmmakers titled How to Not Have to Fix It in Post. In this episode, part one of the workshop, Spacey discusses how to utilize the perspective of an editor to prevent a world of fix it in post. He also talks about the value of hands-on experience in editing across all aspects of filmmaking, like watching for continuity on set, knowing how to properly get good sound, knowing what kind of coverage you should shoot, and general story writing from when you first launched the project in the first place. All of these things come together to bring your project into post-production in a way that can save time, money, and headaches. So, enjoy! First of all, hello. Thank you for uh, being here. I also want to thank the uh, Organization of Independent Filmmakers for having me. Last week, my wife, Cora, presented the workshop on how to make a great film on a deadline. I highly recommend that you check that out. I am here to discuss the topic, how to not have to fix it in post. Okay, I, I, I got the title right. I was just thinking like, I'm going to screw this up and then I'm going to have to fix it in post. And that would be a very meta thing. So yay for me. Um, first, some general information about myself. I am Spaceship. That's the name on all the stuff I release, uh, work on, and edit. But you can call me Spacey. You can call me Spencer Shipton. Just don't call me late for dinner. I am vice president of Space Dream Productions with those kind of jokes. You can see why I'm vice president, uh, which is an independent production company through which 21 completed projects have received over 50 film festival acceptances internationally, nearly 70 award nominations, and we've won 24 awards. Our short film Tidings, which I directed and worked on as an editor, was the winner of the 2020 Miami 48-hour film project Cora's film, Names on the Wall, for which I served as an editor and audio supervisor, is available now on Amazon uh, Prime Video, which where you can check it out. You can check it out right now, um, but not right now, but you know after the workshop. Just watch this and then go watch Names on the Wall. It's great. I, <laughs> I also have a background in music, which I think informs my work in filmmaking and editing. I am an audio curator for the production company Hit Record, which is created and run by uh, Mr. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I've worked on ad campaigns and video projects for Sony, Samsung, LG, National Park Service, and the American Civil Liberties Union, and um, also the Emmy Award-winning TV series uh, Hit Record on TV, and the Emmy Award-winning YouTube original series Create Together. So that kind of gives you an idea of what I've done. And so with all that housekeeping and resume flashing out of the way. I I want to define something for you by paraphrasing a question from Arnold Schwarzenegger in Kindergarten Cop. Who is an editor and what does they do? So an editor is, uh, that's a good question, Arnold. I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, The editor is in charge of cutting and assembling the raw footage of a production after it's been shot, as well as dialogue, sound effects, graphics, special effects. It all comes together into a cohesive final product. This includes watching all the film footage and organizing it by scenes and takes, shaping selected footage into a story. Um, this is usually alongside the director. Nowadays, you use video editing software, and you know you can even do it on your phone. So there's 
there's really no excuse. Anybody can make a film if you think about it, but all in order to create a completed project. This can be a feature film, short film, episode of TV, YouTube video, any anything you can think of. But for this uh, workshop, I guess we're going to focus on film specifically, whatever that means. But um, yeah, so thank you again for being here. Um, now you notice the title of the workshop is how to not have to fix it in post. So let me present something to you. Uh, it, a, a metaphorical, all too common fix it in post worst case scenario, TM. Uh, this is all for the sake of example. It's not to make anyone look bad. It's not to make anybody look especially good. It's just kind of a metaphorical scenario. So uh, picture, if you will, the editor as like an auto mechanic um, that is competent. They know what they're doing. They know how to get it done. Uh, and they're about to clock out for the day. And just for the sake of illustration, don't take this personally, but picture some producers and directors and writers and, and all that as a bunch of exhausted carpoolers pushing a broken down car up the drive into the body shop. Uh, the windows are smashed in. Uh, steam would be rolling out from under the hood if there was a hood. And uh, all it's got four flat tires. So uh, picture that car as fix it in post. Um, it's the result of, oh, we'll fix that later, or that's not my problem, or, you know, it's like, looks good, looks good from my house. Um, all these excuses come together in a 37 car pileup, and it's given to the mechanic, you know, this fix it and post mobile. Uh, here it is, worked fine this morning. Um, can't rewrite it, can't reshoot it. We just need you to salvage it and make it run like brand new. So, oh, also we have no money. Also, we need it in a month ago. So good luck, you know. So that's that's kind of the scenario I want to lay out as to at its worst, because it's not always like that. It's just to get the illustration across. Uh, now, how is a car equal to a film? Well, on a basic level, a car that needs fixing and a film that needs fixing, um, they have at least one thing in common. They're generally considered a total loss when the cost of repairs exceeds its worth. So... The role of editor can go far beyond that point of no return when a film is in dire need of service and repair. So through all stages of filmmaking, from your initial idea, story development, to writing the screenplay, to pre-production, and even for your production for principal photography, um, utilizing an editor's perspective, that's kind of what I wanna go from here, is the editor's perspective. Uh, it can save you time, money, headaches. Uh, it's a way of noticing all those dashboard lights when they do come on, the check engine light, the check the check engine light light, um, if, you've ever, if you've ever seen Big Bang Theory. Um, for something that is all too often put off until post-production, I suggest that you front load editing into your filmmaking because it can make the difference between having a film that works and a film that is totaled. So everybody fasten your Seatbelt, do the clicky thing. I, I don't know car parts, I'm sorry. So that's, yeah. Um, what is an editor's perspective? Um, well, it's a qualified term. I don't claim to know the one true all-knowing perspective of the editor. Um, when I say an editor's perspective, I simply mean my perspective. The perspective is mine. This is what I perspect. Um, that's not a word, but try using in Scrabble. Let me know how it goes. Um, there's a scene from a film called uh, Waiting for Guffman. It's one of my favorite, favorite movies. Um, it's where the uh, Dennis character 
um, played by Eugene Levy, um, is introducing himself, and he's he's kind of has aspirations to be an entertainer. And he uh, he goes, uh, people say you must have been the class clown, and I say no, I wasn't, but I sat next to the class clown and and I studied him. So that's kind of my whole way of doing a thing is metaphorically sitting next to as many class clowns as possible and studying them. Although I wouldn't use such a disciplined word as study. It's more like, you know, a good artist copy and great artist steal. Um, I think Steve Jobs said that. I don't know. He may have copied it or stolen it. But uh, and ever since I was very little, I've watched a lot of movies. Just movies were so, so, so cool to me. Um, and TV, you know, you know, we would get tapes from the library. I remember I, as a little kid, I don't remember this. My mom told me I would run up and down the house, you know, out of the living room into the hallway. Uh, whenever we watch Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, there was a scene where Charlie Bucket finds, I don't know, I'm spoiling it for you. If you haven't seen a movie that came out 50 years ago, I'm sorry. But he discovers the last golden ticket and and he's told, no, run, Charlie, run for your, you know, run straight home. And I would just run back and forth. So I absorbed movies. I watched them and just, they became part of me. And they gave me a, a feeling, like a really good feeling, a feeling, you know, um, that's Mr. Rogers. Um, and, then, and then going into the mid nineties, uh, my dad, you know, in order to bond with him, we would go to the movies once a week or once every other week. So for about four or five years straight, I saw movies, you know, in their first run in the theaters. And around the same time, my mom was going to university and she uh, had access to the school library and they had these really like this big VHS collection. So we'd rent VHS movies and, um, you know, these VHS tapes that changed my life forever, like The Beatles, Hard Day's Night, Help, Yellow Submarine, um, Monty Python films. Uh, there was one that was like a compilation of cartoons that was, it had uh, one called Bambi versus Godzilla. It was it's really strange and wonderful. And um, Stanley Kubrick films. I, I don't know if I should be sharing this, but when I was 14 years old, I saw Eyes Wide Shut in theaters. You know, so that probably explains a lot about me. Um, but, and also around this time, uh, it, I became less of just like a consumer and more of a creator because my mom, she bought a camcorder for our vacation. And then I just started making little movies. I started making stop motion movies and trying to edit in camera and just learn. I didn't know I was learning, but I was messing around. So it was, it was fun for me. And um, around the same time I was getting obsessed with music and discovering that I had a perfect pitch and I could hear things in ways that other people couldn't, or I, again, I realized these things much later. It didn't seem very special to me that I could do these things. It just was an interest that I had. And so I discovered audio editing software where you could do weird things with audio, reverse it, speed it up, slow it down, um, make these. And I, I would make these little movies and these little audio collages uh, that no one would ever see and no one ever would ever hear um, because it was fun. And I, that's how I spent my free time. And you're probably wondering, why are you telling us all of this? This is uh, stupid. Well, it, I, I'm, I think what I'm trying to say is that the editor's perspective, there's someone who has, you know, watched a lot of movies or read a lot of books or listened to a lot of music. It's whatever. It, you absorb things and then you turn around and you are actually making things. You're actually cutting things and trying things for yourself. So it's a lot of, you know, gaining a sense of who you are, what your tastes are, and then 
putting out into to your world. Maybe nobody else hears it, but maybe it's just you or your friends. And you're tr actively trying to make something, emulate what you love. So, um, and what's cool is that I never thought I would meet somebody who not only loved movies, but made them. And that was Cora and, and I married her. So it's like a, it's like a fairy tale ending and it's still going too. So, uh, but I digress. Um, there's a great book uh, about film editing that touches on this idea that I will get into. Uh, it's by, it's by the uh, famous film editor and sound designer, Walter Murch. He, he worked on, Francis Ford Coppola movies. He worked on, you know, so many great movies. Um, it's called In the Blink of an Eye. And one chapter stood out in particular to me regarding a concept he calls the rule of six. So it's a list of priorities for editing. And the way that he ordered it from lowest to highest importance sort of confirmed and made real something that I already believed, if that makes sense. Um, the idea that editing can be used for so much more than continuity, you know, where it's just, you're trying to match shots and somebody picks up the cup and then you do another shot and they're holding the cup in the same position. So matching action basically. So, but anybody who's seen movies like A Hard Day's Night or Monty Python and the Holy Grail or 2001 Space Odyssey uh, can tell you that continuity is often overrated. So with continuity, you know, movies can be so much more than just continuity, matching actions. So, um, but to get back to the rule of six, um, Walter Murch proposes that there are six different criteria that make a good cut. Um, and continuity is at the bottom. It's at the very bottom. So the, the, the order of importance, according to him, you know, this is his opinion, but I kind of agree with it. Emotion, then story, then rhythm, then something called eye trace, uh, the two-dimensional plane of the screen, and spatial continuity. So the interesting thing is if you if you do any research at all regarding these criteria, you'll find a lot of videos praising maybe one or two, especially like eye trace. Um, and it's, you know, eye trace is sexy. It's it's kind of the idea that wherever your your eye is, you want to make cuts to where your eye isn't, you know, flitting all around the screen. You want it to be, you know, guide the viewer's eye to certain areas of the screen, which is great. You know, I love I trace, but when you see essays where they're literally titled "The Rule of Six: How to Edit Effectively with Walter Murch's Eye Trace," you know that it kind of gives the impression that that's of primary importance, and it's not. Um, the way that he orders these criteria, uh, emotion is ranked number one at fifty-one percent. That means that all the other criteria added up are not as important as emotion. So. Um, there's, there's, there's a quote, if you have to give up something, it's, you know, giving, talking about priorities, uh, don't ever give up emotion before story, don't give up story before rhythm, don't give up rhythm before eye trace, and so on. He considers emotion the most critical element to consider when editing, uh, to the point where if, if everything else fails, you still want to cut for emotion. So it's interesting, like, you would think, oh no, story is the most important. And yeah, story is important. But I think the feeling, that's my, this is my take on it, that, you know, the feeling I get from a movie, you know, it can sort of transcend the story itself, you know. So um, I agree with Walter Murch on that point, but there is one thing that I kind of disagree with him on. And that is uh, he, he believes that editors don't belong on set. You know, they need to come to um, the footage fresh, right? And, you know, knowing, for instance, that a shot, 
Maybe it took a whole day or two days to get, you know, it might bias you toward using it rather than not using it. And, um, and I get that. But on the other side of the coin, when you look at the bigger problems, uh, it, you can see why editors should be involved early on. Fast turnarounds plus a lack of planning more often than not equals total disregard for the editor um, <laughs> and because they're essentially the last step in the pipeline. Uh, and the funny thing is, if you pass the buck um, until it can't be passed anymore, it's not even really the editor who is stuck with all the problems, you know, that were not monitored along the way. It's if it's you, you know, who made this movie, it's your problem, you know, on a purely business side, if you've got the money to pay them and the tools exist to fix it, an editor is happy to line their pockets with your mistakes all day long. So and if you don't have the money and they, there's no tools to fix it, then it's not their problem. It comes back to that. It's not their problem. It's your problem. So, and then look at on the creative side, the time that is spent by an editor fixing problems is time that they're not spending on uh, elevating the, the, the emotion, elevating the story, the rhythm, the visuals, all the things that makes an editor most valuable to a project. So if they have to spend their time on problems and not on the film, then it's not their problem. It's yours. So this is what I, it's nothing. It's not, it's not to say you're wrong and, or you're, you know, they're right. It's just what I'm proposing is that the editor's perspective should blur all these lines between separate phases of production to save you from those problems. Before a film is edited and assembled, before it's even shot, before it's planned, before it's prepped, before it's even written, we got to go back to where it really starts. The idea, you know, there's a little light bulb. There's a light bulb there. But just imagine it's right above my head, you know, like ding. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I want to talk about a fantastic area of filmmaking in terms of uh, its creative process and the amazing results, amazing track record as well as the editor's perspective, um, and that's uh, animation, specifically uh, Pixar. Uh, Pete Docter is a director, animator, screenwriter, amazingly talented you know, storyteller who contributed to the story and characters of uh, Toy Story. He wrote treatments for Toy Story 2 and WALL-E, and he directed Monsters Incorporated, Up, Inside Out, and Soul. So uh, great track record, I, I think. And um, he gave a talk where he said it all starts with an idea and you develop the idea. And if it's a good idea, it, it moves into story development. And so that's where they talk about the idea, they research, they kick it around and, you know, with it, within the development team. And sometimes that's as far as an idea goes, you know, it, it might go there, but it'll, it might, it might die there too. So from an editor's perspective, this is great. I, I approve, you know, good ideas never die. And bad ideas should never make it past that <laughs> development stage and into the writing and into the production itself. And that's subjective because there might be someone out there who doesn't like any of your ideas and that's, that's their problem because, you know, art is subjective. Um, but a good idea, I think, is one that eventually knows what it wants to be. Um, for instance, think in terms of, of genre. When you tell a story, you are promising to deliver a certain kind of experience um, if you want someone to watch your horror thriller, you know, it's different from asking someone to watch your rom-com. So you got to know your audience. You got to know, you know, there's certain things that you need to satisfy in terms of a genre experience. 
And your idea can transcend genre, right? It can encompass a lot of different types of, it can be a mashup or whatever, but it shouldn't be devoid of genre. So a good idea is worthy of being more and that you're not only meeting your expectations or a given audience's expectations, you're exceeding them. So uh, back to the Pixar creative process. Um, basically, if an idea shows promise, it moves on then to the writing phase, which for Pete Doctor and Pixar, it means treatments, you know, where you flesh out the story idea of your film before writing the entire script and then scripts, you know, with an S, scripts, multiple scripts and thousands of drawings, uh, the storyboards. Uh, storyboards are so important, um, which even though they are drawing drawings, uh, Doctor considers it all part of the writing. It's an ex extension of the script process. So before I continue on that line of thought though, regarding how animated films are developed, I just wanna point out storyboarding as a great way to bridge the gaps of developing story. Uh, it has to kind of leap from, you know, black typewriter font on a white page to um, pointing cameras and microphones at people and places and things. So visualizing your story even if you're not the world's best visual artist can make a big difference and make editing a lot easier. Um, we have a masterclass subscription and so many directors who do masterclasses illustrate this point. Um, Martin Scorsese, he talks about it. James Cameron has a new one and he talks about it there. Um, they as kids would draw what they thought maybe were like comic books, right? But in fact, they were storyboards. You know, they were thinking in terms of camera movement and cuts and transitions and, you know, focusing our eyes on what, what we're supposed to see, where we're supposed to see it, how we're supposed to see it. That's not just the mind of a director or a cinematographer, but an editor as well. You know, that's, that's very important. Um, but back to Pixar, you might be asking, what does animation have to do with editing? I, this is, I, I don't understand, like, what, what, what is, what? Well, because animated films aren't something you think of as needing to be edited, right? You think the scenes are written and then the shots are animated and then they're put together in the right order, right? They just like slap it all together and then shove it out the door. And that's how you get, you know, up. Well, there, <laughs> there's a great video by uh, Andrew Saladino on his YouTube channel, uh, Royal Ocean Film Society, um, where he goes into a lot of detail on this. And it's really interesting. Um, the process of editing an animated film involves far more than we normally think of an editor doing because it's actually one of the longest lasting and most intensive roles in the entire uh, production. Uh, what creates a lot of problems for post with live action, you know, you shoot first, you edit later, right? Um, where animation prevents a lot of those problems by doing the reverse. You edit first and shoot later. So it's really, it's interesting because that it seems like you're just like, flipping the whole thing upside down. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Well, no, the, the, the directors and writers of animated films, you know, Pixar, sure, but other ones as well, other um, animation studios as well, they want the editor to, to sit with them and figure out the, the, the movie together. You know, they sometimes editors get a chance to, to help write the movie. So it's, um, it's fascinating because it's different from our, how we intuit it, right? We think of it as, well, the editing comes later. And you might think that it ha that's how animated movies have to be made, right? It has to be a backwards process because there's a spontaneity to live action and you can throw caution to the wind and just start experimenting and playing around, you know, towards the end. Um, but in animation, you have to do all that at the beginning. 
you know, because of the labor intensive, the time consuming process of animating. Um, but just all you have to do is look at Pixar's track record in terms of emotion, in terms of story. Just look at Pete Doctor's track record, Monsters Incorporated, Up, Inside Out, Soul. These are heartbreaking movies. These are very, these are, can be life-changing. Um, there's a great quote from Doctor regarding the, the process of getting the story in the can and how it requires a lot of ideas being crumpled up and tossed into a, a different can. Um, I'll just read the quote real quick. Uh, why? Why do you do all that? Why don't you just get it right the first time? The problem is we know we're going to be wrong. And if we don't allow ourselves to be wrong, we're never going to do anything new. We're just going to rely on things that we know already work. So for us, making mistakes is an essential part of our process. We're not embarrassed by it. In fact, we plan for it. So I love that you know, because from a fix and post perspective, you think all oh, the idea is to you know, eliminate mistakes. And in fact, it's just better to get all of your mistakes out, out of the way early, as early on as possible, you know, because um, uh, that's kind of like my story of like learning to, you know, make movies as a kid and learning to edit as a kid, you know, you get all, if you get all of your bad stories out of the way early, I'm not saying that my stories are great now. I'm just saying, you know, you get the idea kind of like the 10,000 hours concept, you know, that, uh, uh, that, you know, the Beatles, for example, like they got all of their bad songs out of them before they came to America, basically. So it's interesting to think in that way that you might as well get all of your mistakes out of the way. Make plan for making mistakes, you know, give yourself room to make mistakes. So um, some quick tips for writing uh, from, a, from an editor's perspective. I'll just kind of read these off and expound. Um, take your time, you know. Uh, if you're working on a deadline, that can be tough. But if you're drafting you know, screenplay, if you're trying to write something, take some time away from your script to recharge your creative juices. Because, uh, I mean, this is true for film editing too. You can't just be a slave to the computer the whole time. You have to, you know, go out and get some sunshine. Uh, you have to be, you know, your synapses need to fire properly, get, get a good amount of sleep. And, you know, but sometimes that can't happen. And, you know, it, it, it happens. Trust me, it happens. Um, but, Make sure you don't spend too much time away because there is a difference between resting and procrastinating. Don't cling to your first draft. Um, it's very easy to become attached to the first draft or drafts, you know, multiple drafts. Um, clinging to that original vision you have so much that it can be like giving up your firstborn child in order to change it. Like, no, no, I want it this way. You're going to have to learn to let go and be open to major changes because Great ideas ultimately um, come from revising and refining good ideas. So it's a process that requires an open mind, which you can't have if you're, you know, first draft only. That's still only, you know, you have to be open to revisions. You know, that's kind of the Pixar, pro whoop, Pixar process too. I just bumped the little thing. Um, cut scenes that don't further emotion, story, rhythm, et cetera. And by cutting scenes, I mean eliminating them. Get rid of them completely. Just like gone. Uh, every scene in your film has to have a specific purpose, you know, that helps move the story forward, moves viewers toward the conclusion. Um, to decide whether or not a scene should be cut, just ask the question, what is this scene's purpose? And does it help my movie get to where I want it to go? If you can't think of the purpose, you know, in relation to the plot, where it's supposed to go, you have to get rid of it. You have to, you have to. But 
Also know the difference between what to cut and what to keep because, you know, a scene that might otherwise get cut because it doesn't further the story but feels emotionally right, you know, relating to the rule of six, don't cut it. There's no reason to cut it if for if you truly believe, if you're fighting for it. Um, and also this is this is something that I do when I write and I, I don't think I'm the only one that does this, but I want to share it. Um, when you're writing, why not think in terms of what it's going to become in terms of cuts, transitions, you know, from shot to shot. Now, some people might think, well, that's the director's job or that's where the director can create on it. And that's fine, you know, that's fine because the script is kind of what you go by. But as a writer, if you believe strongly that it needs to flow a certain way, why not write it that way? Um, so in terms of a simple, you know, cut versus a transition, do you dissolve to show the passage of time or do you cut, you know, what's sometimes you can think in those terms of dissolves and fades, um, cutaways, you know, if you want to do an insert, you can write that into your script. If you want to see a close up of something, or if you want to, you know, focus our intention, um, you know, thinking visually is, is a good way to do that. Uh, cross cutting. This is great. You know, obviously cross cutting is something where if you're on the phone with someone, then I'll be over here and they'll be on the phone here, or they'll be, we'll be cutting back and forth between two different places. And we're like, hello. And they're like, hi. Um, but you can also cut between literal past, present, future, or memory, or, you know, imagination or dreams. You can cut back and forth any way you want. So cross cutting is a great way to do that. Uh, jump cuts, jump cuts, you know, disjointed edits in the same action, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's a technique that you can use in your writing and um, match cuts, match cuts are so, so, I mean, if you've ever seen, there are some famous ones. There's obviously Lawrence of Arabia. He blows out the match and it goes to a sun, you know, the sunrise or sunset, you know, it's like, it's, it's really, you know, you, it, there's a lot of power in just the images. And um, that leads us to the next point. Um, this is my own pet thing. So cut dialogue, create visuals. Um, dialogue is important and you can write your film like a novel and that's totally fine. You know, that your characters can talk. And I, I love movies that have lots of talking. Inception is a movie that has a lot of dialogue, you know, a lot of exposition and it's done in a way where it's offset by amazing visuals, amazing, you know, mind bending uh, story turns and things like that. But just be careful of relying too much on words uh, to convey the film's narrative. Um, because, you you know, an editor can tell you that any piece of dialogue that can be replaced visually probably should be. Um, cutting unnecessary dialogue and replacing it with visual storytelling can make your audience much more engaged because they will be actively per participating um, in the interpretation of the films, of your film's underlying messages. So something to consider. A good example is the first nine minutes of... The Pixar movie Up, it's largely a silent film that goes through an entire lifetime of, of a married couple. And it's beautiful and heartbreaking. And um, now there are exceptions. You know, anyone who's seen Inglorious Bastards, the first 20 minutes, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of dialogue, a lot of talking, you know. But because Quentin Tarantino is known for that novelistic approach, but he also understands how to use it to build suspense and and he can draw the viewer in, you know, visually as well. So uh, this is this is uh, rearranging scenes. This is this is a fun thing. This is fun for uh, because there's so many ways to do it, and the purposes can change. Um, it can help your film be more smooth or 
not be more smooth, you know? It can make surrounding scenes much more compelling or seem not as compelling at first because you can misdirect, you can conceal information, you can reveal it later, you know, that's just by moving scenes into different places. Um, and this is something that's done all the time where a script, is, you know, is a certain way and then you get to the shooting of the film and then they get to post-production and they're like, for some reason this isn't working. Like the original Star Wars film, A New Hope, there was a lot more scenes of Luke Skywalker's life on Tatooine that uh, ended up getting cut for whatever reason. You know, we don't get introduced to him until about 20 minutes into the movie and we just pick up, you know, we don't really need to know a lot of his backstory to know that he doesn't enjoy being where he is. He feels like he's lacking in some way. What's interesting about Star Wars <laughs> is that that the original film is that it's a big, it was a big budget film and it had so many production problems in terms of time, money, headaches. And I just wonder what it would have been like, you know, especially for George Lucas. I think he ended up having to, you know, being admitted to the hospital during the making of it, I think. Um, but just imagine if, if he had, you know, in the writing stage, used the same tools of editing for writing that he did for assembling the film. So why not learn from the best and apply the methods to the film far earlier in the process, you know? So rearrangement is a very powerful tool. So, um, now you might be thinking, uh, no, I just want to write, right? I just have my ideas and and this is my story and I just want to write it the way I want to write it. So just leave me alone. I don't want an editor. To, I don't want any, you know, and that's valid. That's a totally valid feeling. I don't want to invalidate that. But if I can just offer the editor, my editor's perspective, it can be really beneficial. And the process at Pixar, it's not one person writing Usually it's a team of writers. It's a team effort. It's a, they have these strong ideas of what they think will work and they spend the, their time essentially trying to convince each other as desperately as they can, you know, if they really believe in something and if it works, it stays. And if it doesn't, uh, it gets cut, you know, that's, and that can lead to very spirited discussions, which I think something that I've learned is that as long as the, the disagreement is about the work, you know, you want to have good relationships between, you know, on your team. That's very important. Very important. Harmony is important. But if, as long as the disagreement is about the work, it's good to have some fights. You know, in the end, what's right is not the creators, it's the audience, right? Um, so you might feel passionately about an idea or a joke or some kind of story beat, but you put that up on the screen. And if it doesn't land with the audience, then you have to be willing to admit that didn't work. And you got to go back and figure out what will work. But, you know, if you're writing for an audience of one, you know, yourself, then you don't have to worry about what an audience thinks. So that sounds a little facetious or mean, but at the same time, you, you really, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about that stuff if you don't care about your audience. That sounds, that sounds kind of mean. I'm sorry. But um, moving on, I, I, I wonder if at, the, if at this point, if anyone has any questions or anything, or if I should just keep going and then, you know plow right through this because I feel like I'm making pretty good time. So if there's no questions at all, I'll just, uh, I'll just keep going. Okay. I will keep going. Um, and it, you feel free. If you do have a question, you can, you can interrupt, you know, I'm not precious about my ideas. Maybe I am just a little bit, but you know, you can kindly unmute yourself and say that you have a question. So, um, Oh, I'll keep going. Oh, wonderful. All right. That was part one of Spacey's workshop. A big thank you to the Organization of Independent Filmmakers and to everyone who participated. Stay tuned for part two. Bye.
Wait, is, are you going to do that? This is Stacy speaking, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Are we leaving that part? <laughs> no, you can take that That's out. That's going in a podcast. No, no, no. You've been listening to Filmmaking Actually with Coralinda, Space Dream Productions podcast. Subscribe to us on any or all the podcast platforms, but we especially recommend our sponsor, Anchor. If you like what you hear, leave us five-star ratings and positive reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. It helps more listeners like you discover the show. But the best thing you can do if you really like the show is tell a friend. Want to leave a comment or ask a question? Email at filmmakingactually at gmail.com. This is Spacey speaking. And remember, you can call me Spacey. You can call me Spencer Shipton. Just don't call me late for dinner. And we'll see you next time.